You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we'll be focusing on the latest health and safety legislation updates, particularly around returning to work and the coronavirus vaccination programme. We'll hear from SHP's most influential person in health and safety, Hilda Palmer, and we'll drop in some clips from a recent roundtable hosted by SHP about the role of smart PPE in protecting lone workers. This episode of the Safety and Health podcast is sponsored by PeopleSafe. First up, we're going to listen back to some extracts from a recent Barber EHS webinar on the latest health and safety legislation updates. In the webinar, lawyer Simon Joyston Beckel covered returning to work in times of COVID-19, discussing how far you can push the boundaries to get people back into the office lawfully, whether lateral flow tests will help, details around coronavirus vaccines, and how far you have to go in terms of social distancing. Let's join the webinar with Simon talking about the Health Protection Coronavirus Steps regulations for England. The very, very specific thing that stops you at this stage bringing more people back to work in the office is the express restriction on indoor gatherings. So it's a criminal offence if your workers take part in an indoor gathering in breach of these regulations. And so one needs to be aware of that. Now, at the moment, it's no indoor gathering more than one person. So you can gather on your own. Well, that's not a gathering. So you can have people coming into your office solo, and that is not going to be a breach of the rules. But it's going to be widened in step three to no indoor gathering above six. And then in step four, we don't know. We're told now there are no stipulated restrictions as yet. They hope there'll be none, but we can take our own views as to how likely that is. Then there's a slightly different levels for outdoor gatherings, which also change on the same step periods. But then look at the exception that applies in the regulations. There's a specific exception that says you can take part in an indoor gathering above those numbers, where reasonably necessary for work purposes. Those are the words. That's the reason that there could be all sorts of reasonably necessary for work purposes. You can't work from home, I suppose, is the big one. So all the people who are working in the shops that have just opened, those people can't reasonably work from home. So it's reasonably necessary for work purposes that they come in. So that's the exception that allows them to come in to work. As for the people who might be in the office upstairs or the back office, whether they can come in depends on this exception. Is their attendance reasonably necessary for work purposes? So many of those people have been working from home remotely. When can they come in? Well, that's the test. Actually, not a change to what we've seen before. But I'm going to say a few words about how you can push it, perhaps. And then... The roadmap guidance says they're going to do a review of social distancing before step four. So when do we allow back to the office? How far can we push at the boundaries for a lawful return? I think there are three areas worth thinking about. The first is that reasonably necessary for work purposes exception. How far can we push that? The next one is look at the word gathering and workplace attendance that isn't a gathering is not forbidden. So it's the gatherings that are forbidden. 
as you remember from the last slide. And then also, I want to say a few words about how to use those permitted numbers to the best of your advantage. If this is assuming you're an organization that is keen to push the envelope on getting people back, well, many of you are. And even if the listeners, you may not be pushing, others may be pushing you. And you may be in the position of saying, oh, let's hold back, let's hold back. Well, actually, now after this webinar, you perhaps can say, well, look, we could push it in these ways. So the reasonably necessary for work purposes exception. How can we squeeze in? Until now, everyone's been saying, oh, well, we're only going to use that very limited circumstances. But I think some of my clients could stretch it plenty more than they do. So if you want to stretch it, you can look at the employee factors, productivity. So if an employee says, my productivity has gone through the floor since I've been working from home, maybe because of the distractions at home, I don't have uh, quite the same access to um, data or paper files, there may be a variety of reasons, but productivity is a good enough reason, potentially, to say, well, we're not reasonably working from home, not reasonably productive from home, so we need to come in. Or mental health. So someone might say, I'm going mad at home. Um, I mean, um, take it a bit more than colloquially. But if their mental health is suffering, um, or their well-being is suffering, because they're not coming into the office, that may well be a good enough reason to say, well, for you, it's reasonably necessary for work for you to come in. And career development training if or, and training, those two slightly different things. If someone says, well, look, it's all very well, but my learning and training has ground to a halt since I've been at home. But if I come to the office, that will be different. That may well be an, a reason. There will be other reasons, but I'm trying to sort of explain that one can cast the net potentially fairly widely. Also look at the employer factors. Productivity again, you know, we've got the team working from home. They are working, but productivity has dropped by 50% because they're all at home. I would then, I think, quite easily justify. So it's reasonably necessary to bring all or some of them in because productivity of 50% is unsustainable. I think that would be a very strong argument. Uh, whereas if I said all oh, productivity dropped by 5%, that would be a weaker argument. But for many of you, it'll be somewhere in between 5% drop and a 50% drop. And I think it's a question of feeling your way, but there's no reason why a drop in productivity shouldn't be an excuse to say it's reasonably necessary for people to come in. Team working may be the thing that's suffering. And the team working, of course, it can be done pretty well remotely. But if it's just not working or if it's really suffering, that could be your excuse, your get out. And again, staff development and training. So there are lots of factors to take into account. I think, could you also take into account individual COVID risk factors in determining whether it's reasonably necessary for this particular person to come into work. I don't see why you couldn't, or put it this way, I think a world where you were unable to take into account people's individual risk factors to determine what's reasonably necessary for work purposes would be unsustainable. So I think, for the, you flip it backwards, I, th I think 
we have to say that we can take those into account. But watch out for vaccination as a requirement for return. In other words, if you said you can only come in if you're vaccinated, watch out for that. I think for many of you, there's another factor that you might want to take into account, which is the cumulative impact of 12 months of working from home. So, for example, it may be that it's not reasonably necessary for the first 12 months for people to come into the office. But now 12 months has passed and they're still at home it may be a stronger argument to say, well, look, it is reasonably necessary to come in, perhaps because career development and team working has stultified to such a degree that we've really got to address it by bringing people in, or perhaps because a 5% productivity drop for the year might have been sustainable, but we can't go on like this. Next, we're going to hear Simon talk about a no vaccine, no job policy and whether it's lawful. You've got Health and Safety Work Act duties, which I think condition understanding of this policy if you wanted to bring in a no vaccine, no job policy. So the employer must take all reasonably practicable steps to protect the staff and others. So that could be introducing a no vaccine, no job policy, perhaps. And the employees have duties to cooperate with the employer for health and safety, perhaps a duty to maybe get vaccinated, all things being equal, but we'll come to those other things, and to take reasonable care for the safety of themselves and other persons affected by their acts or omissions at work. So that's the underlying principles. But then there's the Equality Act, which really rather very seriously limits the ability to put in a no vaccine, no job policy willy-nilly, should we put it that way. So under the Equality Act, it's unlawful to discriminate on the basis of protected characteristics, which includes age. So because age is a factor, you can't discriminate on age. What happens if your younger workers can't work for you because they haven't got the vaccine because they haven't had it available to them? What about race and religion? You can't discriminate for race and religion. But you need to be aware that vaccine hesitancy is linked to certain race and religion. So you could be indirectly discriminating, which could be unlawful. You can't discriminate on the basis of belief. Now, that means any religious or philosophical belief. So veganism is probably um, a belief. And therefore, if, if vegans are saying we can't use this vaccine because it's got animal products in it or something, or gelatin or something, that might be something that you would be discriminating against them if you stopped them working because they wouldn't get the jab. Is anti-vax a belief? Uh, hasn't been tested in court, um, as far as I know, um, and it probably isn't going to be upheld as a belief if it was tested, but it might be. I mean, there would certainly be argued. You can't discriminate on the basis of disability. Well, what about someone who's got a, a disabling needle phobia? If it really is that severe, maybe you'd be discriminating unlawfully by saying you can't come to work because you haven't got the jab. I mean, maybe they would need evidence to show their phobia, but if that's what it is, one would need to be, an employer would need to be sympathetic. Or if some of your staff might have allergies or other conditions that the doctor says they shouldn't get vaccinated, then you shouldn't discriminate, or if you did, it would be unlawful. And sex is another protected characteristic. It's not just pregnancy, but if you're planning a pregnancy, 
Public Health England recommend against taking the vaccine. So someone says, actually, you know, I've, um, um, I, I, I'm planning a family. I want to have a family. I'm planning to get pregnant. I've been told by the doctor I should follow the advice, so I'm not going to go for a vaccine, but I want my job. It would be then unlawful to discriminate against that person to say no vaccine, no job. So you have a duty to make reasonable adjustments to avoid discrimination. So you must take into account this of these factors above. But you are allowed to discriminate if it's a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So that's what the rules under the Equality Act say. So it's not black and white. It has to really be proportionate and necessary. Where I think that takes you is that I hesitate to use the word reasonable, but I think that is probably the word. Um, you need to behave reasonably in putting in any no vaccine, no job policy, taking into account Health and Safety Work Act and Equalities Act. And I think that has to depend on the sector, the role and the employee. That was just a small segment of the webinar. Hopefully plenty of useful information for you to think about. If you want to go back and listen to the session in full on demand, you can do so by clicking on the link in the episode description. In part two, we're going to hear from Hilda Palmer, who was named SHP's most influential individual in health and safety in December. A former teacher, Hilda has an MSc in Environmental Resources and has been involved in health and safety for over 30 years, working for the Greater Manchester Hazard Centre. Let's join the conversation with Hilda explaining a little bit about her work there. Greater Manchester Hazard Centre is a voluntary organisation. There were lots of them in the 70s and 80s set up by the British Society. Well, they came out of a movement of academics wanting to work with scientists, academics and scientists wanting to work with workers and trade unionists on making work safer. There were a whole network of them throughout the country. There's one in London, one in Birmingham, one in, up in Newcastle, and then there were occupational health projects and a whole range. It was a very, very active movement of people working with workers to try and make work safer, to try and combat the risks and make people more aware, you know, and campaign on, around all those sorts of issues. But, you know, small voluntary groups set up, you know, all over the country working to provide information and advice to workers and help them solve health and safety problems in their workplaces. And was workplace safety something you were aware of and interested in when you were a biologist or did that come since you started at Hazard? I wasn't that aware of it. I had to, uh, to be quite honest. As a biologist, I was aware and very interested in chemical effects, particularly on people, on workers and environmental issues. And so this was something that sparked my interest. And then, you know, I had to learn very, very quickly, very, very steep learning curve. And yes, then everything grew from there. You've obviously been in health and safety for a number of years now, and, and your views on the health and safety system in this country are, are no secret. What do you think the main issues are with health and safety in this country, and, and how do you think they can be addressed? There's basically workers' health is not really regarded as very important. Workers are the canaries in the mine. They are exposed most and considered last, if at all, in terms of trying to protect them or reduce their exposure to chemicals or every other sort of hazard, musculoskeletal hazards, uh, slip trip hazards, falls, all the rest of it. Workers are essentially considered relatively disposable and the COVID pandemic has shown even more how disposable they are actually regarded. And there is a whole tendency to look at health and safety as ridiculous red tape, it's pointless and we don't need it. And that 
narrative has been massively and successfully promoted by right-wing billionaire-owning media and by you know neoliberal politicians of all parties and the idea that business must come first and that has led to the idea that you know we can just scrap health and safety protections it doesn't really matter it's only silly red tape without understanding and appreciating what it actually does how it does protect people and what goes alongside that is a lack of understanding and the lack of publicity on the real harm that work causes it's very very rarely published in papers you get personal stories, but the, the overall impact of work on workers' health, the number of people killed, the number of people injured, the number of people made ill by work and having their lives shortened is not publicised. And that's why in 2008-9, Safety and Health Practitioner actually published my article, The Whole Story, where I set out the thinking of people like Rory O'Neill at Hazards Magazine and Dave White and Steve Toombs, criminologists, on the real cost of work. And we made it clear that the HSE wasn't reporting the full figures. And so the risks to people at work of being injured, of being killed or having their life shortened were just not made clear. And so we put all those figures together and made it clear that, you know, around 1,500 people are dying every year in incidents related to work. The HSE does not record them all. It only publishes those that have to be reported to it and local authorities under RIDOR. So it doesn't record deaths on the road, deaths at sea, deaths in the air. It counts, but doesn't actually publish as part of those headline figures the number of members of the public who are affected. So we reckon that's about 1,500 people. And then we've calculated from experts and epidemiologists and our own knowledge, the percentages of people who were dying from lung disease and heart disease and cancers and all those sorts of things. And we came up with a figure of about 50,000 people. It's gone up now. It's probably about 52,000 people a year who die as a result of their exposures to chemicals and dust, long hours, stress, all the rest of it, who die because of their work every year. That's around 140 people a day. That's two Grenfells a day of people who die because of work. Now, that is not out there. That is not published on a regular basis. We now publish that regularly as part of our International Workers' Memorial Day work. You know, that's a day on the 28th of April when we actually do try to bring all these things together and to the fore and make it clear that workers' lives matter. No one should die for going to work. You know, you sign up to give your sweat, your emotional energy, your enthusiasm, all that sort of thing, but you do not sign up to give your life to your work, either immediately or in the long term. And also what has to be made clear is that this is an equality. This is a class economic issue. The lower you're paid, the more likely you are to be killed at work, injured at work, or made ill by your work. And that's made more toxic and more deadly when you add in the discriminations of race, ethnicity, of sex, of disability, of age. And so that's what we, we tried to make clear. Where do you think that disconnect comes from? Because I think there's, there's generally regarded as, as, and I think it's probably because, you, as you say, the, the, the full kind of figures aren't published properly, but generally the, the health and safety record of this country is generally perceived to be pretty good. So where is that huge disconnect and why is it, do you think, that the message isn't getting out there to the wider public? Well, because there's a sort of conspiracy, isn't there, between government and business and to a great extent over recent years, and probably always that the regulators in making it Britain's the best, that's another... British exceptionalism, you know, we're the best here, we've got the best health and safety in the world. Well, anybody who's just lived through the last year or so can actually see how 
that has been utterly exposed as complete and utter nonsense. We do not have the health and safety system that the fifth or sixth richest country in the world should have. We have an absolutely balderized, deregulated enforcement slashed, cut down pretense of a system in which most workers, and particularly those who are precarious and low paid, have absolutely no chance at all of getting their legal right under the Health and Safety at Work Act to a workplace as free from risks to their to their health, safety and welfare as is reasonably practicable in force. They have absolutely no chance of that. So it comes from that whole British exceptionalism thing and the whole denial of you know, the fact that there's any problem and basically, you know, the very, very persistent idea in the media, amongst government, amongst privileged classes, that workers' lives basically don't matter. So therefore their deaths and their ill health is invisible. And of course, it goes along with a very heavy dose of blaming individuals. You know, if you are poor or you're ill or you're sick, you're disabled, there's a very heavy blaming put upon you. It's it's your own fault. You know, people are expected to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and all that sort of utter nonsense. So it's about blaming individuals. It's about transferring the risks from who's really causing them, which is, you know, business and employers and the people who are making the profit out of it, to the people who are experiencing them, have a very little power to do anything about it. And then when they get ill or injured or whatever, you know, further blaming them for it. It's a very British sort of thing, but it's a, you know, it's a very, it's a very neoliberal capitalist way of thinking about workers and people. You touched on Grenfell a little bit earlier on. You've been working supporting some of the victims of the of the Grenfell fire and subsequently those who are involved in the cladding crisis. What do you make of the recent announcement by the government that they are to provide another 3.5 billion to help remove the cladding from unsafe buildings and uh, the general work around replacing the cladding on unsafe buildings? I should just clarify, we haven't actually been directly supporting any of the victims because we actually don't have enough resources to do that. But we have been supporting the background to this and campaigning around all the issues because Grenfell is an absolutely cast iron, clear example of what is wrong with deregulation. Grenfell was the bonfire of regulations that the government, that Cameron, David Cameron, demanded in 2010, and then the Conservative government since then have carried out. It was a real-life bonfire of those regulations. And so we have been making that very clear that it comes about from deregulating both the control of buildings and their fire safety, outsourcing the inspection of all that process, but essentially sort of privatising it, and also deregulating and privatising the building research establishment and all the system that certified the products that went into construction and succumbing to the lobbying of the people who produce all that sort of stuff to only have the sort of regulations that, that were weak enough for those corporations to want to pretend to comply with so that they could carry on making profit. And that is what we have been doing. I don't make anything of what the government has just announced. It's all far too little, far too late, far too lax. And it is an absolute and utter disgrace of the most, and scandal of the most enormous proportions that all these years on from Grenfell, this has not been solved. And I don't have any faith really in the new system of regulation that they're setting up because it hasn't tackled the real problems, as I've just described, with undermining regulations. Regulations must be precautionary, preventative, and hopefully participatory, involving the people who are affected. And they must be free from influence of profit makers and the people who stand to benefit from lax regulations. Until you tackle all of that, 
and develop regulations that are free from that. It's just going to be more of the same and another sort of mishmash. It's unacceptable. The cladding hasn't been removed and replaced and the, all the cost and the fear and the worry of that has been placed on the people who bought buildings that they had every right to expect were safe. And that goes back to what you said earlier, this idea that Britain has the best health and safety regulations. That's out there, put out there in the press. All those people who bought those buildings think, of course our buildings are safe. We have these really tight regulations. We have the best in the world. Of course we are safe to buy these buildings. And they have discovered now that that is not the case. And they're expected to have known or, or to be responsible for the fact that their buildings were effectively wrapped in petrol, wrapped in cheap plastics and are now flammable and dangerous. It's ridiculous. It's scary, isn't it, when you stop to think about how many times in a day when you're out and about how much you put your trust and your faith into something that's yeah. that's been built correctly or that's been put up yes. correctly that, that at any point could fall. And if, if you stop to, if you you never leave the house, if you stop to worry about, but then sometimes it's in your own house as well, you know, you can't get away from exactly. it. Exactly. And that is the very point. And people who advise the government and who this government particularly are listening to, people like the Institute for Economic Affairs, which are not really an institute, they're a sort of capitalist lobbying organisation. But their idea is that it's up to us all individually to take responsibility and assess our risks. And they will actually say things like, well, if you want safe food, then you must actually pay for the better regulation of that. Yes, the very idea that when you step out of your house, you're walking along the road thinking, you know, are people going to obey the highway code? Is the pavement safe? Is the road safe? I'm walking past a construction site. Is something going to fall off on me? I'm going to get on a train. Have I have all the precautions been taken? You know, are the, are the signals safe? Has the train been maintained? That's actually what this ridiculous attitude leads you to, and it needs to be exposed. And hopefully that's part of what we do is to try and expose that and it is utter bullshit and you've been working hard during uh, the current time at the moment with the, with the coronavirus pandemic to try and bring a prompt end to lockdowns and getting people back to work and working safely what can you tell us about that and the work you've been doing around covid safe workplaces well through the hazards campaign which is the sort of national organization of all the different hazard centers and groups across the country which we've been working with for many years and Hazards magazine. My, my colleague Janet Newsham, who took over from me as the coordinator of the Greater Manchester Hazards Centre and chair of the Hazards campaign a couple of years ago, has set up a very active system of fortnightly talks where we bring people together to discuss all the key issues and we provide information and tools. We've been advising individual workers, but also mostly union safety reps uh, you must remember that safety reps and unions make workplaces twice as safe, half as many incidents, injuries and half as much ill health. So we've been advising union safety reps across the country who represent thousands and thousands of workers. We've been working with different unions to try and provide the backup. We've been trying to make clear that health and safety law still exists, even in a pandemic, even though the HSE has gone AWOL and is hiding behind PHE, even though the government guidance is less than health and safety standards and is very dangerous. We've been trying to make it clear, workers' rights to proper risk assessments and then proper safe systems of work, and that there must be proper protection. Everything must be done on a precautionary basis because we don't know enough about this new virus. And we recommended you know, what needed to be done in order to go back to work safely. And on our Hazards Campaign website, you can find all those sorts of publications, reports we did on our own or reports we've done with Independent Sage. And we've been making the case that you know, work must be safe, that the work is where people are coming together from many, many households and mixing. And that is where the big risk is. And that is what the government has been denying and downplaying. 
and we've got workers massively exposed. We've been arguing for the highest level of protective personal equipment and we've also been arguing for much better ventilation. COVID is airborne. We've been arguing for better ventilation. Ventilation in most of our workplaces has been crap for many, many years and workers have been complaining about it, you know, levels of dust and microbes and volatile plastic dust, all sorts of stuff builds up in the air, including microbes, fungi, bacteria and viruses. And now we've got COVID and they're building up in the air. And if you don't remove that air by good ventilation, then people are going to get sick with COVID and sick with a lot of other things. And so we've been doing a lot of work on trying to give people the tools and information on those and discuss all the issues around this and the inequalities that workers are suffering, black and ethnic minority workers are suffering most, low paid and insecure workers are suffering, women are working. So we've been trying to reveal all these issues and provide information and advice in conjunction with Hazard's magazine, Rory O'Neill, who edits it there and is doing lots of work internationally, and Andy Watterson, who's a professor at Stirling University, and trying to provide backup analysis and a critique of what's going on and expose really the absolute horror of having workers abandoned. Their health and safety is not being enforced by the HSE. Over 50,000 people have been fined for breaching COVID regulations. No employer has been prosecuted. So we've got this theatre of hygiene. We've got workers exposed massively to dangerous combinations of cleaning chemicals and disinfectants and cleaning things manically, whereas what we really need to do is clean the air. Ventilation isn't just for COVID. Ventilation has got to be for all of working life. And we're going to have to invest in ventilation in all our workplaces, including in schools. And our argument is we want people to go back to work, but they can't go back to work until it's safe. Do you think during the last 18 months or so that the role of the health and safety practitioner has changed? Is it more valued now within organisations because companies can't operate unless they are COVID secure? Does that make the health and safety practitioner's role more important and more valued within that company? I think it makes it more important and more valuable and it's become more clear that occupational health and safety practitioners are absolutely vital. The whole of health and safety has become an absolutely you know, frontline issue and everybody could see that sort of initially. But it's undermined by the fact that the government has not made that so. The government insists on, you know, you wear a mask when you go into a shop as a member of the public, but then it lets 30 children sit in a classroom with a teacher without masks. We've got this illogical, non-science, nonsense, arbitrary attitude that somehow when you're in work, when people are in work, in workplaces, that it actually doesn't matter as much and they don't need to be protected in that same way. So it's had a double-edged sort of thing. Everybody, I think, who's got any sense at all sees how important health and safety is and how important occupational health and safety practitioners are in businesses and also outside in terms of providing advice. But the government is undermining that by all its messages, which are going against that. And it is not accepting that work is an absolutely key part of the transmission system, which must be broken and that we must make work safer. That is not one of its key messages. And ventilation in workplaces is not one of its key messages. So they are undermining their own advice. Towards the back end of last year, Hilda, you were voted as SHP's most influential person in health and safety. I know you said at the time when, when we spoke that you weren't particularly fond of, of individual awards, but how did you feel when you heard the news? And, and while you feel the recognition maybe is not for you personally, how important is the recognition for the work that you and your peers are carrying out? 
I was absolutely overwhelmed. I was really gobsmacked. And I was completely blown away by some of the incredibly wonderful things that people said about me. And I'd like to thank everybody who voted for me. And that was wonderful. I'm not very fond of individual awards. I don't suffer from false modesty. I'm modest because I have every reason to be modest. And I work with some of the most brilliant people. And we're all little people standing on the shoulders of giants. And there are giants within the hazards movement amongst the families that I work with. I'm particularly pleased to accept it on behalf of the work we do with safety reps who are lifesavers in workplaces and do an incredible job, but also the families, families against corporate killers, people like Louise Taggart, who was previous winner of this award and is going out there telling her brother's story and telling all the Facker's stories to workers and to managers and employers and trying to change people's attitude and make people stop workplace deaths. So I'm enormously pleased to accept it on behalf of the Families Against Corporate Killers and the wonderful families that I've worked with and the Hazards Campaign and all the Hazards Campaigners and safety reps. But the Families Against Corporate Killers are just the most wonderful, generous people, even in their most terrible, terrible times, the facking journey, as we call it, even in the most terrible times of having just lost someone they love to an act often of the most gross negligence that they can hardly believe because they've taken in all this nonsense about Britain having the best health and safety in the world and they expect, you know, the book will be thrown at the employers and then, unfortunately, they discover that it's something completely different. But what they say immediately, even in their terrible grief, is we just don't want this to happen to anybody else. And I think that is the most amazing generosity and they are an inspiration to me when they tell their own stories and they tell other people's stories they have an enormous impact and we've tried to magnify that through the work of fact and through the work of learning from each one of their experiences and trying to make you know the process better and to campaign and get workers deaths reported in a better way not as careless workers who went to work and found a way to kill themselves creatively that day which was how they used to be reported when we first came into this work years ago but to be reported with much more sensitivity and much more understanding that deaths don't come about as a result of just tragic, unforeseeable accidents, but they're actually incidents which are foreseeable and could have and should have been prevented. Absolutely no one should die just for going to work to earn a living. And those simple messages are things that those families in their incredible dignity, in their grief, get across to people very, very effectively. Powerful, isn't it, when you hear those stories? I've been fortunate enough to hear Louise speak a couple of times and it's really a powerful message. And I think what rang true from quite a lot of the comments is that often people have come across you and met you in, in circumstances which they might not necessarily have, have wished upon because it's, it's tragic circumstances, but actually yes. the support that you have been able to give to them and, and uh, you've been able to empower them to, to help them tell their story. And I think that's what what shone through from a lot of the comments. So I think it's really, really well deserved. Just finally, Hilda, before I let you go, where can people kind of find you uh, on social media and follow your messaging and, and, and keep behind uh, some of the work that you're doing? On Twitter, you can follow us at, at Hazards Campaign. You can find us at our website at Hazards Campaign, www.hazardscampaign.org.uk and on the GM Hazards Centre website where there's a special section devoted to FAC. And hopefully, I mean, if people do think it's worth it, it would be really good if people could actually donate to the work of FAC because we exist on a shoestring. And I think it is clear from the comments that people make and from the work that we've done supporting directly hundreds of families 
but also in our wider work with making that public through International Workers Memorial Day on the 28th of April. It's obvious that we do have a big impact. And so any small funds that people could provide to us to help us to continue this work would be really, really appreciated. I really enjoyed my chat with Hilda. Her passion and commitment for the work she does clearly comes across. The support Hilda and her colleagues are able to provide to help give people a voice is invaluable to those who receive it. As Hilda mentioned, she received a wealth of support from you, the SHP readers, and the warmth of some of the comments from voters meant that she was a very deserving winner of the award. You can find out more about the SHP awards, Hilda's success, and read some of those selected comments by clicking on the link in the episode description. In this final part, we're going to focus on the role of smart PPE in protecting loan workers. Loan and at-risk workers represent a large proportion of the UK's workforce, a trend that has been exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic as social distancing measures have been introduced, shift patterns have changed and an increased number of people work in isolation. PeopleSafe recently conducted a survey among health and safety professionals from across the public and private sectors, providing an interesting snapshot of all areas of loan worker protection in the context of economic, technological, regulatory and cultural trends. Off the back of that, they organised a roundtable, which SHP hosted, to examine some of the trends and highlight some of the pertinent results of the survey with a group of experts from across industry bodies and corporate end users. The results from the survey and the discussion points from the roundtable will be made into a white paper, which will be available to download from SHP in the coming weeks. Here we're going to listen back to some of the clips from the roundtable. In this first sector, we're going to listen to Duncan Roberts at Virgin Media, Jennifer Newbury from East Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust, and they're going to talk about how their businesses had to adapt through the lockdown restrictions. Certainly in the summer of last year, we saw heightened tensions that led to an increase in aggressive behaviour, particularly between members of the public and people within our business. The training we implement in removing yourself, you know, we can replace equipment, we can pay for new things, or we can't replace you. You, know, you are an important asset to us more than anything. What we have noticed is that we are often walking into situations, and I'm sure you've heard it broadcast by media, where domestic violence has increased. Now, that's just happened certainly over the last nine months. That's really come to the fore as lockdown has extended. But our staff are going into situations where before, you know, we would never have experienced that type of domestic violence situation ongoing. So that's really been quite interesting for us. And obviously the emphasis is on for our staff always to withdraw from those situations. But loan worker devices and the alert systems have proved invaluable in terms of protecting staff. Next up, we're going to listen to Jane King from Guys and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust and Nas Dosser from PeopleSafe about some of the challenges businesses have when it comes to keeping people safe beyond their shift. From the first wave, one of the big concerns I, I did have, we saw in the lockdown a year ago, that actually the streets were empty. And this also meant that our staff going home after a 12-hour shift would be getting onto empty trains which was very concerning. You know, you think uh, nursing, they finish at eight o'clock. So they're getting on a train at half past eight, nine o'clock for an hour on an empty train. So feeling very vulnerable. The other important point that we've seen is around what we call adoption and consumption. And how do you get your staff to carry the device at all times and understand the importance of it and what it's actually providing or the application on your phone? I always say to customers when we're having these kind of conversations and I think Jane you, you talked about it right nurses going home late at night it's very relevant 
we don't turn the service off, right? You don't stop work and the service stops. It's 24 by seven. So actually it's protecting you and your employer is providing that sort of extended service to you as required. And it's getting that mindset changed. In this extract, Jane King from Guys and St. Thomas's, Sean Davis from Royal Mail and David Campbell from Eurovia talk about the importance of embedding smart PPE into the culture of the organisation. I think COVID actually has been an accelerant, if you like, for the introduction of, of technology. And whether we call it health and safety or whether we call it security, we need to embrace it and use it to our own means. And just to touch on a point that Naz said earlier is how do you get people to keep the device on, et cetera. What we decided a couple of years ago, so pre-COVID, but actually last uh, year has emphasized it, is we made the loan worker devices PPE. And we said, you will use this, particularly our community workers. And, you know, we, we are talking to about professional staff here and they will pick up their bag with all their equipment in that they will need to see their patients and they'll pick up their patient list, etc. and their sky guard. And it's part of the kit. I think this has been a good opportunity for us to be able to show the value that we as a profession and a function can bring. It's also identified a number of areas, I think, that perhaps could have been invested in better. And I think... Armed with the information that we've got now, the role that we've shown, the essential nature of the functions that we're running, I think why would we not want to use that as a jumping off point to be able to get further investment? Until any of the medical experts on the call can tell me that we can implant these devices as a chip into people, there's still a massive human factor element around that. We've had serious incidents where... As an example, this year, where we've had a greater overturn in uh, treacherous conditions and the driver's left his SkyGuard people safety device back in the depot. So that reliance, that human factor reliance is still a significantly weak point for making this technology work. Finally, the panel were asked for their thoughts on the role of technology in health and safety, particularly PPE, and what it looks like in the future. In this clip, you'll hear from Amy Povell from Yorkshire Water, Jennifer Newbury from East Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust, Rebecca Wignall from Provident, Nicole Vasquez from Worthwhile Training, and finally Nas Dossa from PeopleSafe. Behind all the technology and the training, there needs to be a process whereby when incidents occur, because we are dealing with members of the public, they are unpredictable, We've gone through a very testing time over this past year with COVID. People are more strained than ever financially, mentally. People are struggling with not seeing their families, not being in work. It can be a scary world at the best of times, let alone when you've got a, a global pandemic occurring. So people are perhaps acting differently to what they usually would, uh, being a lot more unpredictable. We have to make sure that the processes surrounding that technology are there. So how can we educate the workforce? What procedures can we put in place before sending someone out to an area to spot if we've got any trends with violence or threats, um, any trends with sort of perhaps patterns of any sort of incidents occurring that have made our teams feel uncomfortable? They report that as an abandoned visit or they report that as a stop work so that we can track that data to see where those are happening. I'd like to see PPE that's better able to be integrated into current working solutions. So, for example, you know, it needs to be smaller, lighter. So it's not such a physical effort to actually pick up a device and carry it with you. An example where we were impacted by PPE 
just right the way across healthcare is staff have to be there below the elbows. So we can't wear, you know, things like wristwatches, we can't wear rings where people are wearing lanyards, they're getting in the way of therapies. That's what I'd really like to see develop. It's not so much giving somebody a piece of kit to go out there and recognise the hazards and prevent that risk to the employee and themselves. For me, it's more about better collection of data and gaining a, a greater insight into health and safety. You know, sort of any sort of trends and themes that can then be used to impact on the sort of like the safety culture, you know, building up that rich data set then to influence any sort of future decisions on. And that's how I see PPE in some senses, some smart PPE, you know, changing things for the future. I think we're going to see a more balanced approach to kind of health, safety, security and well-being over the next five years, most definitely. In terms of technology, I think we're going to get more integrated solutions rather than kind of standalone products, things that can be integrated into systems that are already there. And I think that will help employers and employees to adapt them and adopt them. And I think there will be generationally a greater acceptance of the benefits of technology. You know, with each generation, people are getting more used to kind of it being an integrated part of the way we work and not kind of this alien creature, which is something to be feared. So I think technology is not going to go away. It will just become more integrated. But I think those organisations that work out how to integrate it and embed it in systems will be the most successful ones, definitely. Integration into other services to make adoption easier will be key. Well-being is clearly something that is coming up from everyone and something we've been looking at ourselves. And I think the last thing is around IoT and the classification of devices. And I think we look ahead and think, this is about people IoT almost, right? So it's just uh, the way we're kind of looking to the future a little bit. So that's that's it from us. It was a really interesting discussion to be part of, and I was delighted to be asked to moderate the session. With the role of technology changing so rapidly, I was interested to hear the thoughts and opinions from such a wide range of organisations. Like me, I think you will find the outcome of the survey and the subsequent white paper that will be produced on the back of the data and the discussions in the roundtable very interesting indeed. As I mentioned at the start, this will be available to download on SHP in due course, so please keep a lookout for that. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Hilda Palmer for her time in speaking to me for this episode, also to Barbara EHS and Simon Joyston Beckel for their support on the legislation content. And finally, for everyone who took part in the PPE Roundtable and our episode sponsors PeopleSafe. Thanks too to you for tuning in and listening. If you've not listened to the previous nine episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check those out. Last time we focused on work-related stress and the pressures of working on the front line during a pandemic. If you like what you hear, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We are also available on Amazon Alexa. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'd be really grateful if you could rate us and comment on your chosen platform, as that will really help us to get the show out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news, where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode.